as the crow flies on the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. When I am in town and I'm having a great conversation, one of my favorite questions to ask is, who is one of your favorite conversationalists? Who is somebody you love running into? And you never really know whose names you're going to hear. And it's kind of fun. You can actually watch people get excited when you ask this question. But there's one name, a guy named Mike Sansone, that I've heard actually several people in the city of St. Louis uh, bring up. And so for a long time, I've wanted to spend more time with him. I've run into him before. We've actually been on a couple of video calls, but I'd never actually sat down and talked with him. And it was really a strange and uh, exciting experience because it was like talking with somebody you knew really well, even though I'd never really met him before. Mike and I talk all about real estate and some uh, development work and how he thinks about grit and moving forward and how at such a young age he's built up a real estate company. And we're going to get to that. It is a great interview, but I have two things I wanted to bring up. The first thing is thank you, thank you, thank you to the group of people that raised their hand to be beta testers. I am full, full, full. So um, thank you to the people that asked for another spot. I'm going to try and find a way to uh, maybe create a second set of testers. I have a whole bunch of people in the network right now, and it's exciting because they're just getting started. They're starting to meet one another. They're starting to watch some of the content and even hearing a little bit of feedback here and there. So I'm going to start making changes. And I want to make it so it's better for the next set. And maybe what I'll do is uh, now that I'm not accepting beta users, if somebody wants to put their hand up to be in the first wave of users that I'll have used once I've made some updates and hopefully I'll have another class in there. Um, so if, uh, if you're still interested, what I'd like you to do is go visit uh, vancecrow.com. And there, as soon as you get there, it'll pop up. And if you're a person that wants to put your name up to be in that first wave, just uh, go to that website, put your name in that list, and then you'll um, automatically receive it when we open it up to the next wave. Thank you. This is exciting, and uh, and it's really pretty cool to see people from all over the country uh, start connecting. So looking forward to seeing more of you uh, joining the network and uh, seeing the classes and stuff, and that is all a result of people saying they wanted to support the podcast. If you didn't hear last week, what I talked about is I am starting a program where um, there's going to be classes and a subscription model to be introduced to people that are just like you, people that are fans of the podcast, people that care about communications, people that want to get better. So I'm in testing mode right now. I'm not actually talking too much about it or showing anything about it, but I'm just saying if you're one of those people uh, that would like to get involved with that, I would love to have you there. It was a really, really amazing thing happening so far. Anyway, now on to the second thing. Um, you do not have to be in the network to be a member of the book club, but we are right now uh, reading the Thomas Jefferson Bible. This is um, a really interesting recommendation. So far in the book club, every time we've had a different month, we've been able to experience some crazy new thing, and the book always seems to match with uh, what's going on in the world. For example, we read The Naked Sun right as coronavirus was coming in. And the premise of The Naked Sun is that these people are too afraid to be in contact with one another because they've lived in such a futuristic society that they only see each other over video. So it was really weird and interesting. And this book was suggested last month. So um, we're going to do it. And it turns out that right now there's all kinds of 
really intense pressure throughout the United States, people demanding change, people saying we don't need any change. And it's probably a good idea to go and read some Lindy books and people that are talking about things that happened a long time ago. So we are going to read the Jefferson Bible. If you're not familiar with this, I am told, although I haven't read the book yet, that it is about the life of Jesus um, uh, with all the mysticism and the things that couldn't be proven taken out. Now, I think to some people that is blasphemy. You know, you're not allowed to take anything out of the Bible. I heard that Thomas Jefferson didn't want it published till after he had died. So uh, other people might view it in the way that it's a really interesting way to look at the Bible and maybe to study some of the teachings and the philosophies that can be hard to decipher through stories sometimes. So I'm looking forward to reading it. I'm going to leave a little note right here of a quote that I read right on the very first page that I'd like to share with you. And uh, you can stop it and read it if you'd like to. So now I am on to the podcast with Mike Sansone. Thank you so much for being here. Sansone, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Vance. How you doing? I'm great. So yeah. you are here in St. Louis, and you're actually in a totally different realm than I am, although we run into one another every once in a while. You are in real estate, particularly with multifamily, and I think this is such an interesting market right now because I look at trying to get into the world of apartment buildings, and I think, man, that is scary. There are yeah. Uh, the government is saying you don't have to pay your rent and they're giving people money and people are out of jobs. Are you like at the edge of your seat, gripping your chair, you know, with white knuckles right now, what's going on in your head? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely a, an interesting time for us. I mean, I think that if you're in the business that I'm in, um, which is again, on the, the multifamily, but specifically really on the development side, you, you have an appetite for risk anyway. So I think that, as um, you know, issues like this come up, you, you, I would never have diagnosed that we were going to be in a pandemic and that there was going to be, you know, a virus that was going to shake our world. But I, I always sort of internally prepare myself for um, bumps along the way. I mean, it's just, it's going to happen in the business that I'm in. And so um, there's, uh, there's actually a uh, kind of a, a rule that I follow. Um, the it's, it's called the Stockdale paradox. And it's basically like, you know, you, you, you have a problem, you can't really necessarily diagnose, um, you know, the exact problem or when it's going to end or how you're going to get out of it, but you believe that you're going to prevail. That's kind of how I, I look at this. I don't know when we're going to come out of this. I don't know exactly how we're going to come out of this. Um, but I do believe we'll get through this and, you know, history suggests that we will. Um, and I believe I'm in an asset class that has, you know, long-term potential to be, um, a viable business and a sustainable business um, uh, with with real long term uh, with growth growth opportunity as well. Uh, but specifically um, related to you know people not paying rent and um, you know the government's um, you know tone or or other people's tone on you know not maybe being required to pay rent. I I think that's been a little bit overblown. We've done a pretty good job of collecting most rent um, that we're involved in. Um, really where I've seen the biggest problem is really on the capital market side, you know, so for new projects um, where there's, there's because of the uncertainty, there's so much fear from a lender's perspective or an investor's perspective. And, and that creates, um, you know, that, that creates a, a, a lack of, of opportunity for people like me to, to do new projects. When you're looking at projects, are you staying in the St. Louis area or do you look at multifamily all over the country? 
Yeah. So I'm in, so, you know, I'm, I'm relatively young. So, um, I've, I've not, I've been in this business for about 10 years, but I'm in two markets. I'm in St. Louis and Nashville, um, and intend on really kind of growing throughout the Southeast. Um, the predominant metric that I really look to is jobs, you know, where's job growth. Um, Nashville has seen a ton of it. So, you know, and it's, it's close to home real estate's a local business. I mean, so, you can't just follow jobs and not understand local government, local politics, um, you know, have relationships, have a network. So that takes a while to build. Um, St. Louis being home is a reason that that it's, again, a local business. I'm able to develop here and compete here. Um, Nashville, it took me a while to break through that market, finally have broken through, um, have, a, have a few projects going there. And then, um, you know, have an intention of taking that and, and really kind of moving towards us towards the southeast. The jobs component of what's happening is always important in an economy, but I think that there's this weird opportunity that may only come around once in a generation or once every several generations with the, with the wildness that happened with coronavirus, right? All of a sudden, the allure of the city, like I used to live in Washington, D.C. My yeah, wife and I, totally. when we first got married, we had a 480 square foot apartment that looked out on a brown brick wall. If I had just spent the last two months in that apartment, it doesn't matter how much I love my wife. There's no chance I want to ever let that happen again. And so I want to move to a place where, uh, you know, I can get more space, more square footage, which means I think the job markets are likely to change or at least have an opportunity to change. What do you think of that? Do you think yeah, that, yeah. that happened? No, I, 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 I contend to, you know, with what you're saying. I mean, I agree with what you're saying. It's, it's an interesting, um, perspective because a little bit of that was happening before Corona hit anyway. I mean, if you look at, let's just take really urban, you know, large population coastal cities. I mean, there has been a trend where there's, there are people moving out of those cities to, to kind of spread out a little bit. You know, there's affordability reasons, you know, in certain states like California, there's state tax reasons. Um, in places like New York, there's tax reasons, but there's also, you know, people want to have a little bit of a higher quality of life. Um, as it relates to kind of being able to spread out, that doesn't necessarily mean that you just need to have a bigger home or a bigger unit. Um, it can mean how, you know, how is that apartment building designed? I mean, does it have amenity space where you have co-working options? You know, does it have amenity space where you have a nice gym, a nice pool? You know, you've got a dog park, you've got a rooftop garden, whatever it may be. So I think that, you know, we as apartment developers can only make units so big and be able to, you know, make a return on our investment. Um, we're never going to, you know, have a 4,000 square foot a apartment on a, you know, mass production scale. Um, but can we have a 800 square foot apartment or a 700 square foot apartment and have, you know, really kind of world-class amenities or high-class amenities? Um, that, that I think is, is a way to kind of accomplish the goal that you're talking about where people are still able to have a high quality of life. Yeah. I mean, I, I, when I think of apartment buildings, I think of the, the very cheap, like whatever I could get into when I was in DC yeah. because rent was insane. In fact, I yeah. I'm fond of telling people the rent that I paid for that 480 square foot apartment was double what my mortgage was when I moved to St. Louis, where yeah. I then had a backyard or whatever else. And I remember going and visiting apartments that were in the same price band as what we were looking at when we were in DC. And all of a sudden you're in a palace, you're in a yeah, place that yeah. can have a swimming pool. It can, yeah. the exercise equipment would be worth more than having your own gym membership. So it's interesting to me because I think everybody has this image of the, you know, the real real estate moguls are the ones on the coast. They're DC, New York, but it seems like the action is happening in the Midwest. 
I mean, there's no question. Those larger markets are incredibly active and they're incredibly, they're incredibly liquid in the sense that, I mean, if you own a piece of real estate in the markets that you're referring to, whether that's a DC, Miami, San Francisco, New York, Boston, whatever it may be, you know, the avail the availability of capital and liquidity of that investment is phenomenal. I mean, if you want to sell an asset in Boston, I mean, you can sell it today. I mean, it's no problem. You own an asset in St. Louis, you know, there may be some hiccups. A lot. I mean, you're not going to see the high highs. You're not going to see the low lows, but it's not as liquid. I mean, you cannot, you know, you cannot um, realize that investment as quickly um, or as safely as you can in some of those other larger markets. So, I mean, I think that's kind of the, the, the big difference between those. Um, but there are other secondary markets that have experienced, you know, very significant job growth. Um, yeah, I mean, Nashville, for an example, is is a place that, you know, it's a couple million people and it's and it's growing, you know, more than three percent a year. And it's adding, you know, it's added tens of thousands of jobs. Um, I mean, that that directly correlates to not only new apartment development, but new industrial development and new office development. So it really, you know, kind of back to where we started. It really is. It is jobs. What do you think makes Nashville the place where jobs are growing so quickly? I, I mean, I've often wondered that. I mean, there's a few things that I can that I have been able to diagnose relative to where I live. Um, and I don't know if it's, you know, predominantly the reason for it, but it's, it's a difference. And as a developer coming in, I can tell you uh, why it's been easier for me to develop in Nashville. Um, one of the reasons is, is they, they do have a, a single government structure. I mean, they have, you know, Nashville Metro covers a very large region. There's not necessarily a difference between, you know, the city limits of Nashville or the, you know, the kind of the outstanding um, or outlying counties of Nashville. Okay. They're all governed by one government system. So for me, if I want to go in and I want to, you know, look at a piece of property or purchase a piece of property, I'm able to quickly understand what it's going to take to rezone that property. I'm able to quickly understand to, you know, the, the land use that um, that property is currently entitled for. You know, there's there's a lot of um, information in a central system that's easily obtainable. OK, they um, the the state of Tennessee. I mean, it's a it's there's no state taxes. I mean, I think that that helps. The city of Nashville has been. Um, extremely um, aggressive um, with companies looking to relocate there incentivizing them to do so. Some people agree with that. Other people don't. Um, but that, that has clearly brought jobs. And I think now too, a lot of this is self-fulfilling because if you look at it, their educational system, I mean, whether it's, you have, you know, Belmont or Vanderbilt or, you know, name any number of colleges that are there, they now have a structure to where you have high, highly educated people that now have a place where they can stay as opposed to highly educated, highly educated people that are now looking to, you know, graduate and move to New York or Chicago or whatever it may be. So now it's almost circular and, you know, each one is fulfilling the other. Um, and, and it's pretty robust because yeah, and once, once you kick off that cycle, once you get into it, it can, yeah. it, it can feed yeah. on itself, but you it really have that can. challenge of, you could have the greatest universities. Uh, I mean, St. Louis is fantastic yeah. universities, but if you can't have the jobs that cover the sort of, uh, price that it costs to go to those That's universities, all, completely. You, yeah. you've got to leave, you've got to migrate. You have to leave. Yeah. And, and, and people, I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that people, I mean, there's again, it, there, there's probably some things that exist beyond just jobs, you know, in that in that example. But I, I totally agree with that. I mean, if you look at the retention rates of, you know, take Washington University, you know, a phenomenal university that's located here in St. Louis. And um, 
you'd look at Vanderbilt, okay, which is a phenomenal university in Nashville, you know, two high quality, strong, reputable universities. If you look at the retention of Vanderbilt versus the retention of WashU, it's, it's very significant. I think the retention in uh, for the universities in Nashville, not just specifically Vanderbilt, it's like north of 30%, um, which, I mean, if you're taking, you know, three out of every 10 kids that are graduating and you're keeping them in your local economy and you're providing them opportunities and jobs and, you know, that's a, that's a very educated workforce that's now kind of growing up, um, you know, in the environment that has been created. St. Louis is an interesting, like, weird microcosm. So for people that are living out in the countryside, not anywhere near Missouri, St. Louis is actually made up of uh, some 60-some-odd municipalities, something like that. It's like 90, like a, 90, 90 91, 92, yeah. So that's a that's – um, Roughly that, yeah, yeah. That's a town hall. That's a police department. That's a fire district. Yeah. That's all of these things that every single group. So it, you could be traveling one mile over, and all the rules are different. All of the 100%. building codes are different. Everything has changed. And so it, when I hear you talk about a place like Nashville, I'm like, oh, that's a great idea. What we should do is just centralize it, bring it all together, make one system. But there could be a huge value in not doing that. It's just never been realized because you could have a little federalist system here. You could have little towns that like open up and let people yeah, do all totally. what they want yeah. and try out different rules and see what works. But that's not at all how it works. It, it, it yeah. ends up, at least from the builder's perspective, much more complicated than that. What do you think? I, there, the, don't get me wrong. There are municipalities within St. Louis that are pro-development, that want to see development, that are friendly to the development community. Um, and then there are those that... Um, want to remain as they are. Um, and you really get a, you get a, a different response on just about every municipality that you go into. I mean, it's, so you take a, a business that's local in nature and you almost make it tribal. Like, I mean, it is in some of these cases, it's, it is really, I mean, it's just not worth attempting to develop something in certain communities because you could spend a couple of years attempting to you know, rezone the property, you know, legally to a land use that uh, would afford you the opportunity to develop what you think is best for that property um, to potentially have a group of citizens, you know, rise up against you. Um, and, you know, let's just say you're even successful in your efforts, potentially even sue you um, and, and deal with that. So, I, I mean, that's an extreme example. Um, but, in a uh, kind of township environment, kind of town environment that a lot of these municipalities um, have, have become, uh, that, that's not, I mean, it's just not that uncommon. It happens. The, I, I'm going to keep talking about St. Louis because it's not very often yeah. I get to talk with somebody like you. Sure. But the, uh, the fascinating thing about this place is we have more plant biologists per capita than anywhere else in the world. Yeah. And we have schools that are cranking out, like WashU, cranking out biologists. Uh, people don't realize that Southern Illinois University actually cranks out computer scientists that are doing uh, uh, unbelievable things. And so you've got this confluence of these different schools, and there's a whole bunch of different ones. And, uh, and the biotech world, I think that there's a ready-made um, environment for this to grow in some huge way, whether it's because cannabis is opened and you're going to have a whole bunch of research that goes into that, or just the more that we're able to do with plant biotech at all. But I don't know how you blow oxygen on that fire. How do you take a thing that's I, potential like that and make it burn? Man, I wish I had a, a better answer for you on how to, on how to do that. Um, it seems like to me, you know, removing, um, I mean, if we go back to the comparison that I was 
using earlier, you know, if from, you know, you take one, you know, government structure to where things are um, as black and white as possible. They're not, they're not subjective. You remove that subjectivity from it. So for example, if you have a specific land use plan for St. Louis city and county, you know, that plan really should be the, the guide. It doesn't matter if a mayor likes it or a council member likes it or an alder person likes it. Um, if that plan was, you know, voted on and approved by um, staff and by, you know, city council or by plan commission, whoever, you know, is involved in that, you know, that should really kind of be the governing document for development activity um, and not just, it, it shouldn't be a political issue because some municipality has a new, you know, city council member running against this particular development that's in, you know, their, you know, that's in their next to their friend um, or whatever it may be. Um, so, you know, from my vantage point, in order to, you know, try to try to grow that side of things, it's, you know, I come from a pro-development perspective and, you know, pro-development means, you know, less, less government regulation. So that's how I'd look at it. But it, that's, that's probably a more complicated answer than, than, than just what you asked. So 10 years ago, you said you've been in the business for about 10 years? Uh, yeah, I've been in the, yeah, I've been in the multifamily side of it for about 10 years. I've been in the real estate business for about 13 or so. Yeah. What was the first real rude awakening that you got about like, I thought business was going to be this one way, but actually it's this other way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I definitely, so I, I mean, I grew up in the, in the real estate business. I mean, my grandfather was a developer. My father was a developer. Um, my uncles are developers. Um, and it's just, I mean, I've been around it my entire life and there were things that I learned about it and knew about it that I didn't, re that I didn't realize I, I even knew, or it was, it was almost second nature. I mean, it was just through pure osmosis. I mean, just being around the people in my family. Um, it, but I always thought it was sexier than what it would, than what it was. I mean, I always did. Cause like, you know, my dad would go to work in a nice suit and he'd look good. And, you know, I just kind of thought, you know, that's kind of what I wanted to be like. My grandpa was a, in, you know, in my eyes, a, a larger than life figure. I mean, he was just, he was so stoic. He was incredibly impressive. He was, you know, just the perfect gentleman. And I, that's what I, that's what I saw. And that's what I thought, you know, business was, well, there's a lot of details and there's a lot of stuff you gotta, you gotta do well. That isn't fun. That isn't sexy, whether that's, you know, running numbers on a particular development opportunity, whether that's, you know, having to get in your car at, you know, four o'clock in the morning because a potential opportunity shows up and you need to get to a development site by, you know, 830 or nine the next day before you miss out on the opportunity. Um, whether it's, you know, sitting down with like a neighborhood group uh, to kind of lobby them for a particular development that you're involved with um, and having conversations that aren't necessarily rational, but trying to be as diplomatic as possible. Um, oh, tell me more about that. What do you mean? Uh, well, I mean, you can, so yeah, imagine, you know, where you live and somebody like me comes along and they want to build an apartment building. Um, and you're going to say, Hey, you know, that, that's great. You know, I, that, that, that's good. That'll be good. That'll, that'll be, you know, that's, that's good for the area. There's a need for it. Um, it'll, you know, more restaurants will get created. Yeah, more, more it'll, around. it'll increase the tax base. You know, the schools will see better funding, whatever, whatever your, your reasoning is for it. You know, you may take that perspective. Um, you also may take the perspective like this would be horrible for our area. You know, this, I, we don't want to bring that many people into this area. You could overcrowd the schools, whatever the, whatever the rationale is, you could, you, you hear both sides of it. And in certain instances, it really doesn't matter what you say. Certain people's minds are completely made up. 
I mean, they, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if, um, you know, you're able to prove to them that the value of their home is going to be increased. I mean, if you're able to, you know, rationally prove to them that that can happen, if their argument before you sat down in that room was you're going to devalue my home, oftentimes they take that position no matter what. And so it's, it's, you know, being respectful, showing that, um, opinions do matter, you know, in a process like this, um, and letting people feel that they're heard. And while at the same time, understanding you're not necessarily going to convince certain it's, it's the ones on the fringe that you're really working to convince to, to help lobby your project forward. Yeah. And it's gotta be such a weird position to be walking into a place saying, Hey, I've done all this work. I believe I can make money and create value. And then to have people deeply doubt your your intentions or deeply totally. doubt where, yeah. where you're going like I think a lot of people go most of their lives where the only time they have those kind of run-ins are with their family members or maybe with a coworker. but when you're in a position where you're actually arguing with the public writ large it's a it's a it's a really uncomfortable feeling to be so it disliked is. for something that you're trying to put into yeah. the world yeah, it, it is. It is. I mean, you definitely can't. I mean, you can't argue because you can't win by arguing. There's no question about that. But it is it is a strange feeling um, because, I mean, I, you know, I'm a I'm a nice guy. I mean, I got I have a nice family. I mean, I care about my community and, you know, I, I try to live life the right way and, and all those things. And, you know, sometimes you go into these places and I'm just trying to make a living. And people, I mean, almost, you know, they think your intentions are completely different than what you're communicating, you know, or they're very suspicious of you or it's, um, you know, uh, what, what, what there's, you know, what this person is saying is not what they're going to do. And it's, and that's a tricky thing because it's like, I've never, you know, miss, I don't mislead people. You know, I don't lie. I don't, you know, cheat it's, and it's, and, but they don't, they don't know me. And so I have to kind of reconvince that reconvince folks, um, oftentimes when I, when I want to get a project forward that I'm not, I'm not evil. Yeah. It's so hard for anybody communicating anything to remember I'm the stranger, right? Like yeah, I am yeah. the person that everybody that looks at me right now, they see me as in, in Swahili, they use the word Jenny, which just means like person that doesn't belong here. Some, some kind of stranger here. Sure, and sure. if you're referred to as Jenny, Nothing about that says trust this person more than yeah, yeah, than yeah. Uh, a perfect stranger. But it's hard to remember like, okay, I'm coming into a new place. Even though I was running at 100 miles an hour at my last job, now I've got to come in here and start over with square one oh, yeah, and not yeah, try sure. and get ahead of myself, not rush any of it. Yeah, absolutely. And there, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a lot, there's a lot of people though, too, that, uh, that appreciate people coming into their community and attempting something that is that is going to enhance their community okay so there are there you know for as for folks that are skeptical of it um or um you know are, are suspicious of it um there are there are also those that are welcoming and you know really want to help and really want to see you know really want to you know see your vision you know come to reality and in certain times you know our vision is incorrect and so you know listening to the community and and understanding you know their desires i mean it is still a good it really is still a good process to go through you were talking about the um you know waking up at 4 a.m to go leverage on an opportunity it really strikes me as uh there's a saying that our our mutual friend travis liebig from st louis bank always talks about which is um 
which is basically saying you you're still waiting at the starting line because you never heard that the gun went off and most people think like well i'm waiting for the opportunity to come my way i'm waiting for my chance to do something not realizing that chances are flying by you all the time there's just some people that say well, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to have to get up at 3 a.m. to get down to Nashville in time. A lot of people hear that and they just think, well, I can't do that. And instead, yeah. the people that do it, was that something that's naturally inborn in you? Did your father teach you that? What, how did that come about that you were able to spot the opportunities so you could get off the starting line? Yeah, that, I mean, that was that was ingrained early for sure. Um, again, you know, come from uh, a family of entrepreneurs. And so... Um, I at some point always did want to be in business for myself. And I recognize that if you're going to be in business for yourself, um, it, it's, it truly is up to you. I mean, it, in, in every sense, it's up to you. Um, you have to be a self motivator. So, you know, the, there's, you know, there's no like, you know, paid time off, like days that you submit to the HR department or anything. I mean, there's just none of that that exists. So, I mean, if you, if you want to um, be successful, um, and you want to be fulfilled. I mean, that's a lot of it for me too, is that, you know, I want to feel like I'm realizing my potential. And so the only way to do that is to put forth the effort to feel like I'm, you know, outworking, um, or outthinking or outmaneuvering, you know, those that I compete with or, you know, some of my peers or whatever it may be. But, you know, I would say though, that by far the most profound influence, um, to start my own business and, you know, to, you know, reach for a, a successful life and a successful enterprise uh, was was my grandpa, like not even a, a, a question. I mean, you know, he was someone that, you know, I was, I mean, I was born into a family that had had some success. My grandpa, you know, was born into a, a family of immigrants, you know, that couldn't speak English and had no money and had no opportunities. I mean, none. Um, to where like I won the genetic lottery. Um, he did not. And he went out and, you know, basically through sheer determination and willpower and grit, um, you know, accomplished all that he did. And, you know, I would, I would, you know, if I, if I didn't go attempt to do the same thing, you know, or try to do the same thing, I mean, that would be, that would be a disappointment to, to him and his legacy and all that he stood for and taught us. So it's important to me that I live my life that way. If you're a person that has any sort of uh, competition in you, and, and it's not even always competition. It's, I think for me, it's like a level of freedom, right? I, I love totally. the ability to be like, hey, I thought I was going to do this thing today, but now I realize there's something more important over here. And the act of going into business for myself allowed me to say, I am going to live every day what I believe. Do I believe that hard work is going to take me further down the road today? Or do I believe it's better just to hang around and do nothing? And thank God that during coronavirus, I was already out on my own. I think a lot of people could look at it and be like, well, that's, you know, scary. You don't, you know, you're not making any money. Who knows what's going on? But like, if you're in your, if you are running your own company, you now can pivot that business to be whatever you want. You don't have to go to somebody and be like, would it be all right if I changed this up? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you said the word freedom and that I would say that's, I mean, that's probably number one on the list of why being an entrepreneur is so gratifying. Um, I mean, if you, like, if you told me that I could go make, you know, double the money that I'm making right now, but I'd have to kind of go work in a bureaucratic organization or I'd have to go work in a specific structure that I don't necessarily control, I wouldn't do it. I mean, there's just no way I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't be able to, 
enjoy my life the way that I enjoy it. I wouldn't be able to be as stimulated as I can be. I wouldn't, you know, I mean, there's so many things I think about, you know, when you're, you know, ultimately responsible for the success of an organization, you know, or your well-being or your family's well-being, um, you're able to think strategic, strategically, you're able to think, you know, long-term, you're able to really think deeply about, you know, how you want to live and, you know, what you want to do and how you want to do it, where if you're in a specific structure, um, which is fine, it's just not for me, you, I, I think you, you, you don't have to do that and you don't necessarily, and it's not necessarily welcomed to do that. So for me, it just, it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't work at all. So when you think about uh, what it took to develop your skills to be able to move just from St. Louis into going into Nashville and down to the southern areas, it had to be mindset or thinking that changed along the way. What do you think prepared you to go from being like, I'm going to be a developer here and get this down to expansion? Yeah, I mean, I th- I mean, it's, you know, in our business, track record really matters. And so it's really hard to do your first deal because everyone that you come in contact with says, well, what's your track record? Well, shit, I don't have a track record. I mean, I, this is my first deal. So you, but what, you know, you not, you knock hard enough and you knock long enough. Eventually you kind of break through and you do that first deal. Well, then the second deal, you're able to look, you know, you're able to say, well, Hey, you know, whether it's a seller of a property or whether it's a banker, whether it's an investor that wants to invest in your deal, you can say, well, I did this last one and it was successful. So, you know, come along with me here and do this one until you kind of start to do three, four, five, six of them. And then once I was able to do that, the next, you know, rung on the ladder was let's go out of market and do that. And so now I'm able to, you know, I was able, it took me a while to break into another market to do that and be credible. Uh, But it was kind of the same philosophy and the same mindset. I just kind of, I kept pushing, I kept pushing, I kept pushing. And then finally I I had an opening and I, and I took it. Um, that's my intention too, to continue to move into the, into the Southeast as well. But I also recognize that, um, I, I, ha- I do, I do have to be thoughtful in how my, my business grows. Um, you know, pace does ultimately win the, win the race here. You know, I don't, I don't want to rush it. Um, I don't want to overexpand. I don't want to attempt to overexpand because that'd be, that's a very costly mistake because, you know, for every transaction that I work on, it's, it's capital intensive. Um, you know, whether that's a, you know, a travel budget or whether that's architectural drawings or whether that's lawyers or consultants or, um, you know, uh, you know, certain things that are re- third party reports that are required to put a property under contract. It's all very costly. So I have to be, I have to be cautious, but ultimately um, it's, it's the mindset that someone else has done this before. Um, are they really any smarter or any better than me? I don't know. So let's go ahead and, you know, try to do it too. Yeah, I think I'm the exact same way. Yeah. It is not that I think that uh, I am particularly intelligent. I think I have seen people that are not particularly intelligent succeed, and 100%. I'd rather emulate what they did as opposed to whatever innate uh, intelligence they had. But that takes you a while to learn because when you're a kid, you think, oh, I just want to be the smartest person, not yeah. I want to be the most observant that figures things out. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally, I know, I know. I remember, um, kind of specifically, um, I, when I had graduated college, I'd moved to Cleveland, Ohio, and I worked for a, a large public company that was headquartered there called developers diversified realty. Um, and it was a real estate investment trust and they primarily owned power center shopping centers across the, across the country and, 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 you know, other parts of the world too, like Brazil, Russia, can there were some other countries they were involved in, but, um, 
I had worked there for almost four years. Um, you know, was living in a city that I that wasn't that wasn't going to be home. Um, and I had turned 27 years old, and I remember like at like like it was yesterday. At that age, I was like, I am done just training and trying to just gain knowledge to then be ready to potentially take advantage of an opportunity. It's like, I, I'm never going to know everything. So now's the time to go try and make something happen. Um, and that, and so it was at that point that I realized I, I, there's not like a, an end when you like, okay, I've now learned this. So therefore I can go do that. You know, you kind of have to start doing it um, to be able to, you know, ultimately realize it. And nothing about the way that most children are educated prepares you for that. At least in the formal no. education system, the system is sit down, be quiet. We will tell you what you need to know. And then your job is to retain the questions that we're going to ask you on the test. And yeah. if you get past that, we're going to give you an award. And that means you're ready. But it turns out it doesn't matter if you're valedictorian because yeah. you still got to go do something out in the for real sure. world. For sure. But don't you think like, I mean, so much of that though is, is at home. I mean, like, you know, having grit. I mean, like that's, they're not teaching you about grit or resiliency or anything like that in school, you know? So I think, I think this, the, the, you're totally right. And one of yeah. the biggest things is when you push kids to go after grades, what you end up doing is telling them that failure is going to mess you up, right? If you're going yeah. for valedictorian yeah. and you miss that yeah. one class, all is yeah. lost. Whereas totally. if you're like, Hey, better to fall down and get back up. I think it's the opposite lesson of what you want to be teaching kids. See, I think for me, I, I grew up in an environment where I had such supportive parents that my only validation uh, was not school. I mean, I wasn't a great student and, but I was, I was validated as, you know, by my parents as, you know, being a good brother to my little sisters or older brother or being a good friend to my friends or being, you know, responsible around the, whatever it was. I mean, I had validation from, from them and realized that, you know, that there were things that kind of, I got, you know, I, I'm kind of thinking out loud as I'm, as I'm talking to you about this. Um, that, that that's good. Probably, that means we're at the yeah. edge of chaos when you're, when yeah. you're thinking yeah. well, for the, that, when you're saying mean, it for the first time. Yeah. And when you think of, I mean, that's probably, you know, I guess why I was able to learn, you know, some of those skills and, and, and that mindset to, that I've learned to ultimately kind of propel me into business on my own and, and do things, um, you know, that are outside of just an organizational structure. When I think about leaving the, the organizational structure that you're set up in and you're um, just an employee, the, the challenge is unless you're in a sales role that's facing outward, if you're an internal person, everything flows in the information hierarchy, right? There's one person that has a group of people that then they cascade information down. But one of the things that I noticed with coronavirus is those information cascades that are in those standardized networks like a business they yeah. all got disjointed, right? So if yeah. you were used to being the type of person that got a bunch of information at the water cooler, but you didn't know how to text sure. appropriately, yeah. all yeah. of a sudden you are sheared off of all of that yeah. information. Do you think this lasts? Do you think the shift that we did to have information cascades not be hierarchical, but be through your network of who you text message and email and do those things? You think it yeah, stays I, the same? No, I think that they were... I think that was changing it anyway. Um, and I think that this probably expedites that change. Um, something that came to mind is I have a friend who has developed an app um, and, and developed it quite some time ago and it's been very successful. It's called Bonfire and it's really, and it's an, it's an employee engagement tool. And um, it, it, it really was, I mean, it was, 
initially meant for really sort of large businesses. You know, if you're a, you know, Marriott hotels and you've got hotels all over the world and you've got people from housekeeping staff all the way to, you know, a regional manager or whatever it may be, there has to be a, a way to sort of communicate and understand, you know, what are ground level people saying, what are, you know, mid-level people saying, and then maybe what are some of the executive level people saying and really sort of take that information and everybody and make sure everybody's kind of cohesive. So I think that was, that was happening, you know, anyway. Um, but I think that that's going to, I think organizations are probably going to become a little flatter, you know, and I think that that uh, chain of communication is not going to be as, you know, it's not going to necessarily like waterfall down as you were kind of explaining it. I think that it's going to be, I think it's going to be quicker. I think it's going to be more direct. And I think that it's going to be, you know, less, um, uh, there's not going to be a lot of telephone involved. You know, I think it's going to be more direct, more honest and more accurate. So How have I you adapted to this uh, new video conferencing? How are you liking this? Like, it seems like you've you've adapted well. It, it took a little while. I mean, I, I we did not have a subscription to Zoom when this all broke out. I had to get a subscription. Um, but it's, I mean, for me uh, specifically related to some of the development activity I have going on in in the Nashville market, it has been um, really beneficial because other things that would have required me to travel there, there's no expectation now for me to travel. So, you know, if I were to meet with a, a, a planner at the Nashville, you know, city offices, um, they, it was always meet in person. I mean, that's how it always was. And now, I mean, they're not even allowed to be in the, in their offices. So now it's, you can only meet by zoom or conference call. And so, you know, in that way, it's been, it's been beneficial, but for me, I have a small, you know, there's, we have 10 employees or so. Um, so it hasn't been that, that disruptive. Um, but it's been, uh, it's been a useful tool. And I think that it's a part of it is going to stick around for quite a while. I really do. Well, it's shocking to me when you get on a meeting and you see that people, they haven't fully adjusted to the fact that this telepresence is actually how people see you. It is actually yeah. how they will remember you. And so you look at like, you know, a person that would spend thousands of dollars on a wardrobe, you know, having sure. shiny shoes and a nice suit, but they get on these calls and it looks like their phone is in a garbage can and they're looking <laughs> down in a hole on you. And like, yeah, all you and, see is their forehead. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and like, yeah. it's so, so you can tell that people haven't adjusted yet, but I think it's because we went through such normally telepresence would have been young people are doing sure. it. Now they're doing it in yeah. college. Now we're doing it. But we went from like zero to 60 yeah, and it's, yeah. it's amazing to me who's adapted and who hasn't and who's been upgrading and who's just been like, I, I know. didn't know there was anything I could change. I know. I know. There is, a, there is certainly a lot of that going on. And there's, and they, don't get me wrong. There's some, um, you know, people in my industry that uh, have not taken uh, to this, you know, new way of, of doing business. Um, and, and it'll be interesting to see, like, does it have, does it really have a material impact on them or not? I don't know. I mean, it, it could, it may not. Um, but it's, it's certainly, you know, I, I, I welcome it. I think it's a thing of the future. So you are, if, if you're, if somebody were living in St. Louis and they knew Mike Sansone, you have a reputation for being one of the, the nicest, most congenial people. I, I could meet somebody random on the street. And if I brought up your name, it would be like, Oh my gosh, he's so nice. Development is a, you know, knock down, run around, fight, 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 kind of, at least that's my impression of it. How do you bridge these two things between the, the, the personality that people know you as and this world that you live in. Well, I don't know if everybody would say that about me, but well, I everybody I've I, ever I, met. <laughs> I appreciate, I do appreciate No, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, 
I think, you know, for me, you know, I've, I really kind of, I look at the business again, um, at the age that I am at, I look at my business really from a long-term perspective and it does not behoove me to, um, you know, treat people, um, improperly, um, to win a deal, you know, because that one deal may cost me five down the road. Um, and so, um, I also, I think kind of come from the, the, the perspective, uh, that, I really try to have an abundance mentality in the sense that if this deal doesn't work out, there will be others. Whereas if I had a scarcity mindset, I would really look at this and say, if this deal doesn't work out, I'm screwed. And so therefore I've got to do whatever I got to do to win this deal. And there's, there are people that are in my industry that have that mindset and, um, and I don't. And so I guess that's probably the best answer to that question. Um, but there's still, don't get me wrong. There's, there's a lot of people that are in the real estate business that are really good, solid people that are honest and easy to work with and, and, and understand that, um, you know, the long, that the long, understand the long-term nature and the long-term relationships of it. Yeah. The abundance mentality is a tough one because you can wrap yourself around in that of like, Hey, things are going to work out. They're all going to be fine. But that then can lull you into laying down on the couch and feeling nice and warm and comfortable instead of being like, Oh man, I got to keep going. I got to, this didn't work out. I got, so what's the balance between the crazed, I got to get business done. I got 10 people and a family relying on me and the abundance mentality. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I think that there's, you can also have that mentality be very tested as well when you've, you know, maybe lost out on a few deals and you're like, Oh shit, when's the next one coming? Um, (laughs) you know, you're saying, Oh, don't worry. There's, you know, the B be positive. You know, there's plenty of opportunity out there. I think like for me, what I've tried to do is I've, I've had that concern multiple times throughout my career is I, I look back and I now have enough of a track record and enough time under my belt to really look at history and look to see kind of how it played out and rely on that and say, there's a, it, I will, it will probably look like that in the future too. So remain calm. Um, don't, don't get concerned, but, um, you gotta, you gotta keep your foot on the gas. Cause that can happen. I mean, that, that can absolutely happen. There's a guy, um, you should interview him actually. There's a guy named J Dr. Jason Selk, um, here in St. Louis and he's a performance coach. He was, um, he did uh, a lot of the sports performance work for the Cardinals. Like when they won in 2011, I mean, he was involved with that team. Uh, he works with a lot of professional athletes. Um, but I mean, he is a, I mean, he is a mindset coach and, you know, one of the things that, you know, that he taught me was that when things are going well, it, that, that is the easiest time in the world to take your foot off the gas and say, God, everything's going great. You know, this is, this is awesome. And for me specifically, like if I do a project, you know, that's, that's, I got about three years of, you know, where I'm making, where I'm making money. So it's really easy to let off. You know, it's not like I got to like, you know, get back in the game in 30 days. Um, but, uh, you know, from, from his perspective, you know, the second, I've done this before, you know, the second you let off the gas like that, um, you know, you miss an opportunity, you miss another opportunity and it, it takes, it's hard to, to climb out of that. So I try to be intentional about, you know, when things are going well, enjoy it. Um, but, but, but be push even a little bit further. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I always have this constant fear. Uh, you know, so much of what I do is just creative, right? It's coming up yeah. with a new idea. And I think that's probably development too, right? It's, it's some combination between physical work and capital, but creativity. Yeah. Yours is more creative for sure, but yes. But I always imagine like, that was my last good idea, right? Because you yeah, can't totally. see beyond the creativity that you're having today. So you Very can't similar. be like, I'm going to be yeah. confronted with a new problem and I will again be creative. And I would say if there was one thing that made me lose sleep since I was probably 20 years old, it's when I'm like, oh God, what if I don't have another creative idea ever yeah. again? Yeah, 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 totally. It's, it's the same thing for a project. The exact same thing. I mean, I know that exact feeling. Uh, but then you've, but you've come up with a lot of creative ideas. So you can now look back and say, I did it then. Um, I had that concern then. Um, I have this concern now and it'll, it, you know, there's, there's enough of a track record to where this will probably work out. So you are looking at the world and you're trying to imagine not the way that it will return to, but the way that it will be the, the, the changes that are going to be dramatic enough to have an impact on how you do business and how business gets done in not just six months, but three years, five years. Yeah, yeah. What's the, what's the heterodox view you have? What's the change about the world that you think is going to happen that most people are like, no, that's no, that's either too far out there or not far enough or. Yeah. I don't know if I, ha I don't know if I have like a, a completely contrarian perspective than the masses. Um, but I do, I try to, remove myself from today's environment and look at, you know, what does 2023 look like? What does 2024 look like? Because for me, um, if you, for example, if you take a project that maybe I started building a year ago or two years ago, when I started building that project and when I expected to deliver that project in July of 2020 and, you know, rent that to people that were looking to rent an apartment, if you would have told me that I was going to be delivering that project into a global pandemic and there's people that are quarantined that are quarantined that are not leaving their homes, you know, the economy is seeing, you know, 20, 30% unemployment, you know, there's additional <laughs> government stimulus. I mean, I would never obviously do that transaction. I mean, I would never have done that. I would have never done that. So for me, I also, so now take that to the, take that to the complete other side of the example, do a 180 and say, Okay, here we are, global pandemic, high unemployment, very uncertain times, you know, protest on the street, you know, you know, we're talking about inequality issues, racial issues. Um, it's, it's a very, very uncertain time. I also cannot assume that that's going to be the case in 2023 or 2024 when my next projects will be delivered. Okay, so I kind of have to try, I have to sort of remove myself, uh, you know, from that from those bias. Um, but uh, I do think, you know, specifically related to the business that I'm in, I really do think that um, having, this kind of goes back to where we started, um, having an apartment or a place to live that um, affords you the opportunity to have really kind of a holistic life there is, is critically important. You know, so whether that's having, you know, the appropriate amenities for co-working, you know, people are probably going to be working remotely more frequently. I mean, I, that, that's already been announced. And I, and I do think that some of that will re revert back to kind of the, the way it always was. But I think that there is a contingent of industries that will remain, um, that will remain working remotely. I, I, I absolutely believe that. It's been too effective and efficient. And, and so therefore for us, 
you know, when we develop a place where people are going to live, you know, and as of right now, you know, living in a home or living in an apartment is not being disrupted by the internet. You know, working is being disrupted by the internet. You know, shopping is being disrupted by the internet. Um, you know, certain experiences are being disrupted by the internet, but you know, like where you live is, is not been heavily disrupted by the internet. How you find where you live has been disrupted, been disrupted by the internet. But, you know, so for us, it's, you know, how do I, you know, provide a place where someone can work there, live there, be happy there, um, and want to stay there. And it's, and it's, you know, and, and you do that through not just the physical unit that they live in, but the, you know, the amenities that you're offering as well. I have a good friend named uh, Randall Comfort that is an architect and uh, he does architecture work a, a lot of times for executives that are also have some kind of art, you know, fascination that okay. typically he finds people that like they are fascinated by something and they're also, you know, doing well enough to be able to have architecture services. And he said the big change that's happened to him is everybody wants a space for uh, telepresence or whatever you want to call it, it's video conferencing in their house. They want their office to be reconstructed. They want to think yeah. about how does it sound? And you think about like, there's no way three years ago you could have predicted that. But no. now you would say there's no way three years from now is almost certain that there's going to be more of a demand for that sort of building and thinking and, and working. Absolutely. it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. And like some of the, and not to say that that's obvious, but that that's, you know, that you can easily understand what you're just saying right there. I'm trying to figure out, you know, what are some of the things that are, that's not intuitive? You know, what are some of the items that people are going to really need that are going to really want that we don't know we want or need yet? Um, specifically in my um, area of concentration in the, you know, in the multifamily business, you know, so it's, it's easy to understand and it's easy to design a building to say we need to have some co-working space because people are going to be working remotely you know more frequently okay but now you take that one step further and it's like okay but we also have to have you know maybe a little like you know nook in their individual apartment unit that has the that has the ability to have you know strong that ha that that where someone can take a zoom call you know, and have good sound quality and have soundproofing, good soundproofing, soundproofing. Yeah. So all that, can, you know, so it's, it's those kinds of things that I, that I, that I need to think through a little bit more too, because it is certainly a part, it is going to be a part of our future. Well, this is a fun game. Cause as you're talking about that, I think about like, what were some of the most valuable things? And one of the most valuable things to have at my house right now that I would have radically underestimated before was an outdoor place to easily work out. Because you think about like spring and summer, I, I, if I'm going to have people over to work out with, I can't go to the gym. If I'm going to have anybody work out, we're going to do it outside. How do you set this up so that you can do this, even if you're in a global pandemic? And that was one of the most valuable yeah. things that I had at my house was the ability to work out outside. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I would have got, if I would have had a home office that was actually dislocated from my home, like, you know, where, cause like I have a, I have a detached garage and I have a space above my garage that um, I'm currently building out for an office. Like when that is done, that's going to be really useful because I have four little kids and they don't care if I'm in my home office in my house. I mean, they don't respect those boundaries. <laughs> they don't, they don't, they don't, uh, they don't recognize what I'm, uh, what I'm trying to do or how distracting it is. So, um, you stay incredibly fit. You are like, you know, shiny and sharp and look like you're in shape. What do you do to be both a professional, have four kids and, and stay on top of this? Um, and well, thank you. That's a nice compliment. I, uh, well, my wife's into work. My wife's pretty into fitness. So, um, it's, uh, 
probably a, you know, a family value that we, we both follow, but I think is really led by her. Um, you know, I try to work out anywhere between, you know, three, four days a week. And I, I'm not trying to, you know, win any competitions or anything like that, but I am trying to have, you know, basic shape, um, and basic fit and a basic fitness level, because I think it's important for me. Um, you know, I like the, I want my kids to look at me as, you know, a strong, energetic, father. Um, my grandfather was that way. My father was that way. So, you know, again, a, a good example, um, you know, having four little kids that are six, four, two, and almost one is, you know, it is it's certainly, I mean, it is really busy and it's chaotic, especially during this quarantine. My gosh, I mean, I wouldn't wish that upon anybody. It's been a little tough. Um, but we, you know, try and keep them active as much as possible. Um, I try to be intentional with them. You know, like, for example, when I get home from work, I am generally tired. Um, and I don't really feel like playing with my kids all that much. Um, but I try to set aside, you know, 15, 20 minutes. And if you just do that every, you know, every night for kind of a long period of time, that that adds up into being a, a meaningful relationship as a father to my daughters and my sons. Um and then, uh, you know, from a hobby perspective, I, I love to play golf. So that gets me outside and I'm able to do that. Not as, not as often as I'd like, but I, I enjoy it. Well, I, one of my favorite questions to ask is uh, I, I picked up during coronavirus because everything was moving so quickly. And then I was kind of under the impression that this was not a great question because things were slowing down. But I, my intern this morning was like, Hey man, you got to keep asking this question because it's, it's so things are changing so rapidly. So the question is, what do you think the world will look like in two weeks? And I put, I posit that because, you know, two weeks ago when I was asking people this, nobody said we're going to have uh, riots and protesting and, and racial inequality is going to be one of the highest things that people are talking about. So what's your, your prediction on two weeks from now? I really have to answer that. Yeah. I have no idea. All right. Um, my prediction on two weeks from now, you know, what is there going to be more police departments defunded? You know, I guess that's one that I could, I could take. Um, my friend has I a very I'm, interesting yeah. uh, analysis of those defunding of the, the police departments. She, she started throwing up budgets for some of the cities that were doing that. And she was saying, yeah. you know, there's a correlation between cities that were already running in the red and had a bunch of trouble funding their police. And now who are saying it'd be a great idea to defund the police. To defund I, the police, yeah. I, I yeah. mean, and I don't know how legit or how right or how accurate her thing is, but I do know there are a lot of cities that were running into the red and it no would never be a chance to be able to to, you know, maneuver those contracts under ordinary circumstances. Yeah, that's good. That's going to get very political, though. And I think that's going to change um, quite a few different times before there's before that's uh, whatever decision is made is ever on solid footing. Um, and there's going to have to be some sort of, I think, national response to what that's going to look like as well, because, I mean, it's one thing for a small municipality to defund a police department. It's another thing for a major city to defund a police department and not refund it. That's a, that, uh, you know, assume that it doesn't get refunded or refunded at the level that it was currently, that it was previously funded at. Um, that's that I, I think some of what we're seeing right now, you know, there's, it could be, there could be some, some politics in play right now. And so it's just, it's just hard to detect. It's hard to detect what that's going to look like in the future. I have no idea. I don't try to predict what the future is going to hold at all. I try to kind of understand where I am currently. Uh, you know, I take the, 
information, I mean, really, if I look at my business, I try and take the information that's available to me today and I try to make the best decisions based upon that information. You know, because if I start trying to analyze what the future may hold or if I start trying to predict what the future may hold, again, back to my example of what I have known, what we're in now. I mean, had I thought that I wouldn't have done that a pro, you know, a certain project that's going to deliver, but I'm still glad I did the project. Yeah. So, now it's going to deliver. It's going to be done. You have that's, to do yeah, and it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It, it'll be fine. And it'll be fine. Yeah. It'll be, I mean, it won't be as successful, you know, as I would have liked for it to be, but it'll be successful. It'll just take a little bit more time to get there. And if, if you were talking to a young person that says they want to get into real estate, but they've moved into a new city, they don't know anybody, they don't know anything. What is the first step of somebody that wants to move into this realm? Yeah, well, I would definitely work for a, a, a company with, you know, some sort of national scale. I would work for a large organization. There's no question. You just get exposed to a lot of people. You get exposed to a lot of information. You get exposed to a lot of details and have resources that if you were to just go work for, for me, for example, I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't be able to provide a young person you know, the, the, the same amount of information or give them the same head start that a larger corporation would be able to give. There's also, you know, in certainly larger cities, I mean, there's real estate groups and things like that. There's Facebook forums, there's LinkedIn forums. I mean, there's all sorts of ways to get connected to people. And I would just start, I would just use, I would use those three things and you can, it's amazing what you can, what you can do in a, you know, a one or a two year period as a young person, the people that you can meet. And if you show eagerness and hunger and the ability and willing to work, I mean, you know, that's a really attractive quality for, for people that are seasoned in our business. Yeah, I think that the most underrated um, thing that a, that a young person can do is write a letter to somebody and say, this is why I'm writing you. This is what I'm willing to contribute. And this is why I'm willing to contribute it because I think I can learn or get these things. Yeah. Man, that letter will you take you that. everywhere. Yeah, I did. I I, and yeah, I got an intern, yeah. right? Like yeah. he wrote yeah. me that email and I was like, man, whatever you want, I'm willing yeah. to help you because you were willing to put that out there. Yeah. But, but what you just said though, too, letter, I mean, if you got a handwritten letter from somebody though, and, and they like, I mean, they physically took the time to, you know, write on a piece of paper and put that in the mail, get a stamp. I mean, that's not, it's not as easy as it once was. Um, that, that, that means a lot too. That's very personal. Yeah. I think handwritten letters are, are deeply important. And I often think of it as like, by putting this ink down, I am, the ink is the equivalent of my soul going on. There. It's just a little bit of who I am being pushed yeah. into that. And there's something different about what you write when you have a pen in your hands than totally. what you type. It's, it's different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it takes longer. It takes more focus and it, yeah. And it almost takes like a bigger commitment too. I mean, you almost, you have to like sit down and focus. I mean, yeah, I could rattle off an email pretty quick, but to physically write a letter, it does take a little bit more time and thought. Do you keep a journal? I, I have in the past, but I, I'm, I'm not um, consistent enough with it to where, no, I don't, I don't, I don't do it. Brother, it is the best habit. It's yeah. better than running. It's better than it's the best it. happy. Yeah. Like if you yeah. if you're just like, hey, I don't drink my first sip of coffee unless I've written two sentences down, all of a sudden you'll start getting two sentences down. Yeah, yeah. And is that what you do? Like oh first yeah. Thing in the morning? As okay. much as I possibly can. There's a rare circumstance where I don't and and uh, I, I often talk about it being like uh, letters from my past self to my future self, because you start to be like, and particularly like you think about a three-year project, right? You're like, yeah. I don't know what I was thinking when I did this, yeah. or I got yeah. involved with this person, or why I was so enthusiastic about this. You go back and you read this manual that you've created about yourself, and you're like, oh, that's because he did me a favor, and I wanted to repay him, and this is how I did it. Sure. Okay. You, just, yeah. you can't believe how much 
you you pull I, out of those letters yeah i've never i just i've never i've wanted to take the journaling i understand the value proposition in journaling um a lot of people say what you say and how important it is with you know just as part of their daily routine i don't know what it is like why i haven't been able to do it i think part of it is like i don't know how to like properly write to myself you know sometimes i feel like i'm writing myself a note sometimes i feel like i'm just documenting a day you know, so I can remember it later. You know, other times I feel like I'm, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, something that may be deeply emotional to me. I mean, it's just, I just don't have a, I guess I just don't have a great playbook on how best to journal. I if there is that, one. I, I, so for me, some, so I uh, did a series where I was kind of um, talking about this a lot. And so I've, I've definitely thought about it a lot. One of the things that I think you can do when you're first starting is just say, the very first thing I'm going to do is write down the emotion that I have right now. And the reason this is so powerful is most of the time we have sensations and feelings and things that we think and feel that we don't have a word for. And so we start to be like, I'm unhappy, right? But unhappy is like a really yeah, broad, general, that's a really vague word. Yeah. Right. And if instead you're like, I'm nervous or I'm, I'm, you know, feeling anxious. And then you write that down and then just say, give me two sentences. That's all about why you think that is. Sure, and the sure. very act of just doing one word and two sentences pops you into a different space. And yeah. I, when, when I did this, I was going back and you realize like, man, I don't actually like the person that is the raw emotion me. And I, I found that I liked the person that wrote the two sentences after or maybe the sentences after the sentence I had written because that person was more thoughtful about why do I have these emotions and what's going on as opposed to just inhabiting the Sure, emotion. sure, sure, sure. How often do you look back on it? Not very often. Okay. Not, not very okay. often. You know, I had this experience where my mentor, before I was a journaler, I would always write him letters. His name's Pete. I would send him letters. One time I went to visit him and I saw that he had this file cabinet of people that had sent him letters and it didn't really dawn on me until he pulled out my folder and handed it to me. And I'm reading these letters that I had written him. And I started being like, wow, look at how much I remember now about the past. I wish yeah. somebody would write letters to me. And then I was like, oh, you idiot. Gotcha. That's what okay. a journal is. That's gotcha. you're writing few letters gotcha. to your future self. And do you, do you keep a physical journal or is it electronic? I mean, is it electronic? All physical. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. And, okay and, got it. And that was a big transition too. I tried to do like uh, electronic journals. I know there are apps out there, but I have uh, my my workbook, like this is the thing yeah. that throws every, all of my notes in what should, I should do. And then I have another book that's kind of put away that is just, hey, these are my emotions. This is what I'm going through. This is what I'm afraid of. And that one, I mean, I almost don't go looking through it because it's so, when you get good at it, it becomes so close to these like uh, nerve points that you're like, I can look at that and I can feel good or I can, can feel, feel sad or whatever, really? but it's a lot. So you, you just, yeah. it almost becomes this like power book that you have. Sure, sure, sure. Got it. Now, do you like, so if you have a physical journal, if you're going to read a book, I mean, do you read it on your iPad? Do you get a physical book? How do you do that? I, for years while I was traveling, I did a ton of audiobooks, And then okay. I started to realize that I could not recall the story nearly as well a year later or two years later. So yeah. um, I, I read it, I try and read a book or, or two books a month. And uh, I, I always get the physical copy. Is it yeah, I'm much, much okay. more likely to keep coming back to it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of how I am too. Yeah, I like the physical copy. I find that, I mean, it's obviously more convenient to 
you know, not have it um, and just read from my iPad and things like that. But there's like something that's kind of romantic also about actually owning the book and having the book and having it on a bookshelf and, you know, looking back to it and things like that. But just yeah, that, that, that right there, these are the books I have from this year. Right. And it's just like a little log of what did I do? Where did my mind go? Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Mike Sansone, this has been a blast. I am so glad you came on. I'm sure we'll have you on to talk more about real estate, both in St. Louis and across the, the South. So thank you, man. All right. All right, man. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it, Vance. That's going to do it for today. Thank you so much for being here. I am so excited to be doing podcasts at a more frequent level. And a lot of that has to do with still being at home for coronavirus, which has given me the time to uh, make this new network and set of classes that I've been doing. I'm really pretty excited about them. Thank you to all the people that raised their hand to be beta test users. I don't need any more. If you'd like to be in the first wave of people to subscribe, I'm going to try and chunk it out from fixing the corrections that the beta test users spot, then having some of the loyal fans and uh, listen, longtime listeners of the show kind of come in there, see if it's valuable, if you like the network, if you take the classes, if you think they're valuable, and then we'll open it up to the general public. So if you want to be one of those groups in the um, first wave, just uh, go to my website, vancecrow.com, and uh, put your email in, and then that way I can send it out to you. So thank you so much for being here, and we will be back very soon. I have some really fun people coming up to do some interviews, so um, looking forward to it. Ah, ah, ah.